Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Gemma Honey. Gemma is the Managing Director of Bambino's Childcare Centres in Plymouth, Devon. Gemma, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure having you on the air with us as well, Gemma. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in first and foremost and just look at that word leader in isolation, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Um, I think um, the word leader is about empowering other people. Um, I think being a good leader is not about a dictatorship. Um, Being a good leader, uh, for me, certainly is about identifying um, people's strengths and allowing them to flourish, allowing them to grow, allowing them to um, make mistakes, um, to fine-tune their skills. Um, That's certainly... An approach I think I've always um, adopted. Um, I certainly look for people's skills and qualities, what they can bring to the table, um, and I think that's really important that to to empower people and, and allow them the opportunity to to develop. Um, I'm certainly seeing that in my own organisation. Um, leaders and managers have been able to really progress and become confident um, and highly knowledgeable and and then equally inspiring to others so um yeah i, I that's that, that would be my summary of um of a of, of leadership and a leader I think you're very right that there's an importance for a leader to inspire and it is a constant learning process. Even as leaders, we never really stop learning and we never stop developing. And another important thing to take away from that as well is the fact that some of the most influential leaders out there, if you like, can be mentors and teachers and the like. And you'll know all about that, of course, um, given your years of work as a teacher yourself, Gemma. But bringing um, into sort of the if you, if you look at the teaching profession and also you look at childcare as well, that brings a whole new degree of people management into leadership. And even though leadership and management may be two different things, I think people management is especially important. The issues such as communication, working with different personalities and your line of work, working with children, be that in teaching or be that in childcare, that throws up a whole new list of challenges for leaders within the profession, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely, you know, and it, it is about, um, you know, look at, looking at um, everybody's um, qualities, um, you know, and managing. Everybody needs something slightly different um, and, and they need to be nurtured, um, the same as, you know, children need to be nurtured. Um, adults, um, you know, we, we all need that um, as well to be able to, to grow professionally, personally, um, you know, certainly Obviously, as, as a leader, you need to make sure that you know you 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 can steer the ship in the right direction. However, um, you know I think by allowing um, input from others in, it only can benefit 
um, your organisation and, 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 you know, bring further positives, um, you know, stifling um, creativity um, um, and, and knowledge is, 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 is going to have a negative effect. Um, and certainly I would always want to do the, the opposite. And I think that's the same for, for children and, um, you know, um, from a teacher's point of view um, and, you know, from a management point of view um, and leading, leading a staff team. And there have been some real challenges with that sort of leadership at the moment, haven't there, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business leaders and different leaders within governments having to feel their way through this uncharted territory. Because a lot of us are working remotely at the moment, so leadership is having to be carried out from a distance, communication channels are having to be kept open through technology to provide reassurance and other such um, issues, keep people informed. And that must have thrown up some real challenges for the likes of uh, yourselves as well, even if you have been able to remain open in some circumstances. Yes, I mean, certainly. I mean, communication, you know, in my opinion, is key in 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 you know all all aspects of life you know communication is is essential um and thankfully we are living in a world where um you know we we can keep in contact um easily so that that has helped um yes there has been challenges um ensuring that um people are informed in a tight in a timely manner um of course the government has been muddling through, um, you know, a terrible time and as acting as, as fast as possible. Um, so, you know, well, of course, I have been um, understanding that things can't always be as quick as, as, you, as you want them. Um, however, you know, um, you know we, we've all done our best in these extraordinary circumstances. Um, and definitely, you know, keeping the staff up to date um, with, with, with communication, keeping our parents up to date. Um, also, you know, ensuring that um, we've been communicating with our children through various initiatives um, where possible. Um, it's, it's been fantastic. We've been able to do that through the use of technology. And that's fantastic to hear that obviously it's been easy to uh, to do that. Um, has it been quite difficult uh, providing sort of reassurance that people need, um, however, because there's been a great deal of uncertainty during this time, um, I guess, and sometimes given that there is um, that much uncertainty, the leaders who are being looked to for advice maybe don't know that much more than the people around them. So keeping communication channels open in that sense, just to keep people reassured, that must have been a little bit tricky. Um, yes, Um I mean, what we have found is, um, you know, we we have um, been very, very open um, and transparent with um, every, every, you know each step of the way with where we are, the guidelines, how, you know, what we're having to work with, um, but equally what we have put in place. Um, you know, uh, we have shared risk assessments, which have been, you know, and are incredibly stringent and robust. Um, we are ensuring, you know, that our lines of communication are absolutely spot on to give that reassurance, not only to our parents, um, you know, so they have confidence in sending their children back to nursery, but also to our staff. You know, their, their well-being is equally as important and, um, you know, we, we need to 
we've had to make sure that their knowledge um, is secure in, in what they need to do to keep the children safe and also what we are doing to keep them safe. Um, so yes, it has, it has, you know, it has been challenging to make sure that everything is in place, managing um, everybody's safety. Obviously, that's our number one priority. Um, and, you know, and communicating that clearly, um, which fortunately we, we have been able to do, yes. And that's really, really positive as well. Um, concerning that there's been a great deal of debate as well about the new sort of COVID secure guidelines, um, which allow schools and childcare centres to uh, reopen and the fact that the government has also U-turned on plans to try and get especially primary schools open uh, before the uh, the end of the uh, term. Um, do you think it's been clear enough um, as to what's been expected of yourselves or do you think it's still sort of very much up in the air and there's not a lot of people who really know what they're doing? To be honest, um, for nurseries, for childcare providers, so for very young children, um, I think the guidance is quite clear. Um, I, I think naturally in a nursery environment, um, the, our ratios are very small. Um, so um, it's actually possibly slightly more um, manageable, more manageable than it is for a primary school. Um, I, you know, again, this is my opinion. Um, I think that, for example, a two-year-old um, will be in a ratio um, of one to four. Um, and what we are um, doing is creating bubbles. Um, so small little groups, again, in line with government guidance. So um, the same... Um, bubble of children will be um, cared for by the same member of staff. So we are, um, the guidance is very clear about, you know, the, about reducing the risk of um, COVID-19 um, spreading. Um, it is virtually impossible to ask uh, very young children to socially distance. Um, however, um, the guidance is clear on, on advice on how we can best reduce the risk and, and manage that, and I and I think you know, so far our experience has been it is manageable. Um, our um, nursery settings and the buildings and the rooms lend itself well to accommodating small bubbles um, in separate rooms. We have lots of outdoor space, um, and uh, you know that outdoor space is is, is a is a an area which we are using. A lot, um, again, because being outside further reduces the risk of the spread. Um, so I think, you know, for, for a nursery environment, because we are naturally used to being in small groups, um, and um, it's, it's, it's manageable. Um, I think for primary schools, I can understand that there are more challenges because there are naturally, you know, a larger group of children in, 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 um, you know, a single room. Whereas in a nursery environment, it's not always like that. You know, like I said, we, we have separate rooms, separate areas, um, outside play areas. Um, it's, it's, I would imagine, um, it's slightly more manageable. Mm. And if we think about, what the future does hold now um, for yourself and for Bambino's uh, Gemma. I'd be interested to know what you envision um, for the next year um, and what you really hope to achieve because I understand that you wrote in the Parliamentary Review back in um, sort of January, February when it was published um, Mm -hmm. that you hope to see long overdue improvements in government commitment to addressing the funding gap between rates and the real cost of childcare. With COVID-19 now in the equation, is that something that you still hope to see? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, the funding gap crisis was present before the coronavirus pandemic, um, and it still needs to be addressed. Um, I fear that this will become uh, ever more prevalent um, post-coronavirus. Um, our settings are likely, nationally, are likely to face additional financial struggles with potential reductions in income. Um, you know, there will be um, families that will be uh, facing financial hardship. Possibly there will be, you know, un rising unemployment. Um, they will possibly, there may not be um, such a demand for, for childcare. So, you know, there is, there is a very real possibility of you know, further reductions in income for childcare when many settings are already facing financial difficulties where um, the government level of funding for the alleged free hours is so low. Um, you know, so 100% this, this is an urgent issue that needs to be addressed um, by government. The, you know, the, the rate of um, pay awarded to local authorities passed on to um, settings uh, for children to receive uh, funded hours, early years education, um, needs to be raised. It needs to be raised, um, you know, um, substantially every year in line with the living wage or the national minimum wage to enable quality um, childcare to be delivered and excellent standards to, to be continued. And uh, unfortunately, our post-coronavirus, I think this will become even more um, significant. So I, I do hope that um, that will be on the agenda um, at some point. Let's certainly hope so uh, for sure, Gemma. Um, it's been an incredibly informative um, experience and also a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, with us today. And it's a shame that we're just about out of time. Otherwise, I'm sure we could discuss it uh, well into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but um, I think uh, given how insightful I found this um, experience, and I'm sure the listeners will, of course, follow suit with that, we should perhaps even think about having you back on the programme in the next few months, uh, Gemma, just to see how things have changed in that time and maybe yeah. discuss what exactly the new normal is looking like within the childcare industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, enough what it is. It's our new normal. Um, so, you know, we are, we are embracing it um, and, you know, making sure number one priority is our children's well-being is as high as it can be and they are safe. Um, so yeah, we you know we uh, will continue to keep going. Absolutely right. Safety is of course paramount. And for those tuning into this, um, as it stands, do stay home where you can. Do look after yourselves and do stay safe because it really, really does make a difference in controlling the coronavirus and saving lives. Gemma, it's been an absolute pleasure. And that was Gemma Honey I was just speaking to for the listeners, the Managing Director of Bambino's Childcare Centres in Plymouth, Devon. Um, coming up next on today's programme, however, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.